We are podcasting from inside the archive room. Welcome to episode four of the Year 12 English podcast. My name is Suzanne Hack and I'm the VCE English team leader here at St. Leonard's College. Thanks for listening. We've had quite a few episodes going up this week and I guess that is indicative of the fact that the SAC for Stasiland is on Monday the 8th of September after school in the Kevin Wood Centre. For this episode, we actually have a special guest, one of uh, the Year 12 English team members, Miss Sonia Murr, has recorded a podcast looking at fantasy and reality in Stasiland. So stay tuned and we'll be hearing from Miss Murr now. Hello there, Miss Murr here to talk to you today about the idea of fantasy versus reality in Stasiland. If we break the entire text down, um, you can look at Stasiland in terms of the binary oppositions of fact and fiction. Uh, you can categorise um, themes uh, such as political ideology, you can, you can look at characters through fact and fiction and you can also examine the idea of uh, Funda as literary journalist through this notion of fact and fiction. Any discussion of the text in this way should obviously acknowledge the various shades of grey that, that, that blur the lines between fantasy and reality, so things like trauma, the effects of memory... Um, also the effects of nostalgia, so that combination of nostalgia and a longing for the values that were celebrated in East Germany during the reign of the GDR. Uh, you need to, so you need to make sure you take these things into consideration when you're looking at the text in terms of these two binaries of fact and fiction. You need to understand that these lines can indeed be blurred. So as I said, fact and fiction, the binary oppositions can be broken down in terms of character stories. When we think of the lies, perception and fabrication involved in the character stories, both victims and perpetrators, obviously there is um, truth in the text, but there is also this element of lying, um, self-perception and fabrication. Uh, Anna Funda's narrative style, as I said, is significant when we separate the book into those two areas of fact and fiction. Uh, the literary, obviously, uh, reflecting the fictional element and her journalism being the more factual side of her narrative style. You need to remember that she's documenting the lives of others while inserting herself into the narrative as a protagonist uh, or indeed a narrator slash hero. Further to that, fact and fiction can be looked at in terms of ideology. So we need to think of socialism as a theory or ideal um, and a fantasy and communism as the sort of opposite in its uh, realism. So the reality of communism, the factuality of communism is very, very different to the theorised socialism that it was born from. So you need to look at the idea of propaganda versus actuality as well in terms of ideology if, we, if we're considering fact and fiction. 
Um, and as I've mentioned before, memory is, is significant when you're looking at this. The effects of psychological trauma and pain and the tricks of memory are obviously going to affect people's versions of their story and their, their sort of uh, version of the truth. Okay, so if we look at the characters, we're just going to have a look at a couple of characters and separate their stories into sort of factual and fictional elements. Um, we'll start with Air Wintz. Um, uh, as many of the characters seem to sort of fall into um, what Funda describes as a gap between reality and fiction, Erwins is one of those. Uh, we know that, in fact, he um, uh, is disguised as a West Westerner. He plays spy games. He does all of these things. We know, in actual fact, he's a paunchy and jowly hound dog who speaks in authoritative barks. Now, this notion of authoritative barks um, and the description of him being paunchy and jowly. This, this, this sort of metaphoric description of him as a puppy dog is interesting if you think about the, um, the, the notion of fact and fiction because we realise that his barks are indeed much, much worse than his bite. He's a paunchy and jowly hound dog, even though he has authoritative barks. So um, Funda certainly presents... The two sides of Erwin's. She looks at um, the, the way he perceives himself, and the way he tries to project himself, and then the actual description of him, which is is, is reasonably benign. Um, we know that he uh, works on the Insider Committee. So th this is a group of men, a group of Stasi men, putting forward their side of the story. We also know, so that's sort of the factual side of things, the Insider Committee, but we also know that the, this group of men have renamed what was once called the Insider Committee and this is part of this fictionalisation of what these men are actually still doing post-GDR. They rename the Insider Committee the Society for the Protection of Civil Rights and the Dignity of Man. Now, we know that um, nothing the Stasi ever got up to in their time had anything to do with civil rights or dignity. Um, and certainly uh, Airwintz and his colleagues are continuing this on to the future. So, so while they've set up this insider committee and the motives of that are actually quite sinister, they purport to um, be protecting civil rights and dignity. So, again, this idea of the fact of the insider committee and the fictionalised version, the Society for the Protection of Civil Rights and Dignity of Man, is significant in any discussion of his character. Um, Funda observes that Erwins is too underconfident and unconvincing to have done anything um, terribly crucial or um, at sort of the high level of the chain in terms of his involvement in, in the Stasi. Um, she acknowledges that by constantly referring to his spy play acting. That's on page 85. Um, all of the quotes that I'm discussing in this section on Air Winds are sort of between page 81 and page 85. Um, she wants to discuss the realities of life with him, so, so the realities of life in the GDR with him, and she says that she, she keeps trying to bring him back to what was life really like living as a Stasi officer in the GDR. But he constantly, and this is a quote, he constantly returns to the beauties of socialist theory. So there's a little bit of crossover here in terms of a discussion of themes between um, the, the sort of character discussion and that, that element of fact and fiction between socialism and con communism. 
So that quote returns to the beauties of socialist theories on page 85. Um, she thinks he wrote procedural manuals as part of his job as a Stasi officer. She's not sure, and we need to acknowledge this in terms of her sort of subjectivity as an author. She's sort of joining the dots because he won't tell her much because he's so busy giving her this fictionalised version of himself. And she acknowledges that um, his... his um, affinity with, with a fictionalised version of himself um, or nostalgia uh, is a part of a rewriting of history. So the quote um, that I thought was quite interesting in light of his fictionalisation of himself is on page 86 um, and he Funda says, there is an art, a deeply political art of taking circumstances as they arise and attributing them to your side or the opposition in a constant tallying of reality towards the ends of which it is innocent. So this rewriting of history, this idea that you take what you need to create your story um, and support your cause, I think, is, is quite interesting in terms of the, the, the way the Stasi and particularly Airwinds reflect on um, his time as a Stasi supporter. Um, Aircock is also quite an interesting character if we consider these notions of fact and fiction. Um, he, we know at that as the personal cartographer to Honecker, he was born to a father who was once a Nazi prisoner of war. So Heinz Koch, um, Nazi prisoner of war, he was compelled to join the um, communist movement um, in order to be reintegrated into German life. Um, and Air Koch says himself, and this is a quote from page 158, my story comes directly out of my father's story. So we know that um, in lots of ways, Aircock's um, sort of uh, making comes directly, and he acknowledges this, comes directly from his father's story, his father being a Nazi prisoner of war. We also understand that, that the communists and the Nazis were um, not aligned. We know that Nazism... Um, led to the imprisonment of many communists. Um, and in this way, uh, uh, the fact that Aircock was um, forced to join the Communist Party after the, uh, after the war, we know that um, Aircock himself was groomed to be a poster boy for so socialism, and that's that quote where she describes him as a Mustaknab. Um, a poster boy for socialism. So he's not necessarily... Um, it's not something that he chose or that he became a part of. It was something that was forced upon him uh, by the GDR elite in order for his family to, to integrate and be a part of German life. He needed to adopt this. And in this way, Aircock also describes the GDR as like a religion. That's on page 157. He describes the GDR as like a religion, again, in a way to reinforce this idea of, of um, um, sort of mythical alliance. Um, Okay, so if we think about Aircock's, um, the, the truth of Aircock's uh, life, we know that there was, and this is a quote from page 175, a ruining of a marriage, the destruction of a career, 
the imprisonment of a wife and the abandonment of a child. We know that these are the facts of his life. And yet he is compelled to be a good socialist. So the fictionalised version of Aircock doesn't sort of acknowledge any of the truths. He is a good socialist, and that's uh, his description on page 172. Um, so this idea that we, we emerge as a result of um, a fiction that others have created, um, or, or these people emerge as a fiction, part of a fiction that others have created for them, is really interesting if you consider the complexities of that character. Um, now, obviously, the victim stories, there's an incredible lot of detail if we look at notions of fact and fiction, and I think this, this has been covered in preceding podcasts, so I'm not going to go into it in a huge amount of detail, but broadly, if we consider Julia, we know that um, her chapter, um, or one of her chapters is titled Julia Has No Story. This is a fictionalised version of Julia. We know that in actual fact she had an incredible story. So the reality is her story is incredible. Um, the fact that she says she doesn't have anything to do, any stories of the Stasi or anything like that, and the fact that she constantly makes herself sound uninteresting or unremarkable um, when talking about herself with Anna Funda, she... This is, this is something that she's conjured up as a result of her experience. She has, she's, been, she's become a part of that process of being made to feel small um, and, 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 and being convinced of that. Um, as I said, you can go into an incredible amount of details in terms of the, the, the differences between the fact and the fiction of Julia's story, but that, I guess that's the key element. She has an incredible story despite the fact that she's fictionalised herself as someone who is unremarkable. Um, Frau Paul is obviously quite a complicated character in terms of fact and fiction. Um, we know that she was politically active. Um, the GDR fictionalised her as a criminal. Um, she sort of um, ducks and weaves uh, any really in-depth discussion of her involvement um, of uh, with with uh, people smuggling. But she, she we, we know that this is we know that this is a truth. And this this sort of area, where when we look at Frau Paul, you can't you have to cross over into a discussion of um, Anna Funda's narration also because there's that sense of not knowing the full story. So our fictionalised version of Frau Paul um, is constructed through the gaps in her story. Um, Miriam and Charlie, obviously um, their suffering at the hands of the Stasi is incredibly real, um, but at every turn, Miriam faces the, the lies and the fictions of the GDR. She says it was utterly absurd on page 27. So a lot of what she goes through is utterly absurd. And it's unbelievable. It's part of this sort of fantastical journey that Funda refers to time and time again. There's obviously a lot to go into when you look at the victims. Um, but I would recommend unpacking Julia Fraupel and Miriam Charlie in terms of their fictional and, and realistic um, stories. Now, Funda's narrative style, um, if we look at literary journalism as a style she's adopted for this novel, I think this is one of the most... Uh, it's a stylistically significant um, um, part of the text that must be looked at in particular if you are um, investigating the notions of, of fact and fiction in the text. 
she indeed organises the, the entire text in a way that reflects these key themes of, of truth and lies um, or, you know, fiction and reality or fiction and fact um, or journalism and um, literature or creative writing. Um, we know that she shifts between the literary and uh, literary commentary or creative writing and historical commentary. We know that she's personally involved and her judgment underpins much of her reporting. We know that the connections that she makes with the victims um, are very different to the horror that she feels uh, about some of the actions of the supporters of the regime. And she does this in a way that inserts her as a narrator, not only a narrator, but also a protagonist and, and almost a hero of the story. And this is in direct... Um, I wouldn't say conflict, it's probably more a conflation. There's a conflation between her being narrator and an, invest an investigative journalist. So the two roles come together, and in this way, again, that, that idea of blurred lines needs to be considered. So in terms of structure... Um, there is that idea of fact and fiction. The lines become blurred in various places. In other places, it's quite obvious that she's shifted into that um, historical documentarian. Okay, so if we look at narrative style and the quote, I think the quote that what was said wasn't real and what was real wasn't allowed is really interesting because it's this sort of circular... Um, thing that feeds into itself. So the lies, um, again, the lie, the lie after lie after lie. I think Klaus Rempf says this. It's a it's a it's a circular movement where um, untruths are required to deal with untruths to the point where no one really knows what's true anymore. Um, to start with, in terms of narrative style, it's important to acknowledge Funda's um, um, inclusion of references to Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the fantasy element uh, of children's stories being compared to the very real and ugly but fantastical and absurd uh, world of the GDR is significant. So we know that she says she's having adventures in Stasiland uh, and we know that there is the quote at the beginning of the text that she has borrowed from Lewis Carroll from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland um, let the jury consider the verdict, the king said, for about the 20th time that day. No, no, said the queen. Sentence first, verdict afterwards. So this is quite significant because it highlights a lack of justice that existed in the GDR um, or the kind of the crazy um, childlike version of justice. One of the most significant or interesting elements of her kind of parallel with these children's stories and in particular Alice's Adventures in Wonderland um, are the use of the cardigans. I think when she, the two men, Cardigan 1 and Cardigan 2, when she arrives at the television archive to have a look at the, the footage from the Black Channel, she comes across these two men at the front desk. Now, their um, disposition, their treatment of her, the way they communicate with her is very reflective of the characters Tweedledee and Tweedledum in the text Alice in Wonderland. So I think that's worth considering and certainly worth visiting, certainly worth visiting that section of the text um, to understand uh, why Funda has included these fantasy elements. Uh, that's in the, the Lipsy chapter um, and she refers to the two men as Cardigan 1 and Cardigan 2. Again, not dissimilar to Tweedledee and Tweedledum. 
So this fantasy element is as a thread that runs through and is significant because I think it's Funda's way of acknowledging the absurdity of the GDR and the people who, who run it. Um, in a gr little more detail, there are a few things you need to consider in terms of um, Funda as a narrator. So if we look at her as a narrator, and that's the factual side of this fantasy versus reality sort of a world, um, her reality is in, um, comes through historical detail. So when she is um, the journalistic narrator, and in particular when she looks at the Stasi headquarters and in the chapter Stasi HQ, we see examples of her more detached sort of reporting style. Um, the way she adopts third-person omniscient narrator for facts and figures is um, a direct sort of signpost for the fact that she's shifted into reportage and research. Um, on the other side of the coin, the sort of fictional element of her, of her narration really acknowledges the fact that a lot of um, the past in terms of the GDR, and this is a quote, cannot be pinned down with facts. That's on 160. She can't pin down the whole story with facts because there were so many secrets and lies, and she acknowledges that. And to deal with that, she inserts herself into the narrative. This is why she becomes this sort of hero protagonist. Um, so she uses figurative, descriptive, evoca evocative language. She uses vivid language. She uses sensory imagery. And she does all of this um, as a direct kind of um, shift or contrast with the reporting um, in, the, in the sort of the, the more historical, historically detailed sections of the text. She adopts first-person active voice um, and she includes... Uh, references to her vulnerability, her fallibility as an author or as a as a reporter on history, and her subjectivity. So, in terms of her subjectivity, the connection she makes with the victims is obvious in its way of informing her um, writing. I love the idea that she becomes the um, sort of literary puzzler if you like, patching together all these personal stories in the same way that the puzzle women she documents um, patch together all the torn-up documents. So it's almost like she, the, the, she embodies what the puzzlers, what, what the puzzle women are doing by patching together all these personal stories to help fill out what actually happened in that time of so many secrets and so many lies. Um, I think also it's interesting to acknowledge the if you think about Miriam's story, the the moment where um, in the in the first few chapters, I think it's chapter two and chapter four, we've got the Miriam chapter separated from the Charlie chapter, which is chapter four. Those two chapters are separated by the Bornholmer Bridge. I think it's significant to note that that not only do Charlie and Miriam's chapters come separately with the bridge in between. That needs to be considered in terms of comparison with chapter 22 at the end where Miriam and Charlie are reunited together in the title of the chapter. So structurally, Funda makes these little suggestions about um, how far people have come um, and also through, you know, through remembering Mir Miriam and Charlie have come together. Okay, um, perhaps one of the more complex areas 
um, worth looking at in terms of fact and fiction is ideology. So the contrast between the theory of socialism and the reality of communism is significant and really, um, you know, puts forward this idea of the um, fantasy of a humane kind of world versus the reality, actuality of inhumanity um, as represented by communism. So we know that prop propaganda um, sort of represents this fantastical element of life and then we compare it to actual life in the GDR and they're very, very different. Um, we know that communism means dictatorship um, and that's the factual element. We know that socialism, on the other hand, is very much a theory about equality for all and this is um, put across through propaganda, through the Black Channel, through, the, through her description of Ellipsy um, uh, and on the other side of the coin, this factual element is that the life in the GDR is very different to the propaganda put forward and this is highlighted when we look at um, von Schnitzler. We know that he's a benign character in many ways um, and, and Funda kind of highlights that by um, titling a chapter von Schnitt, describing the way that people have turned off the television before he can even finish saying his name. We know that uh, unemployment is part of the propaganda machine because it actually doesn't exist. We know that... Um, in the unemployment office, it's claimed that there is no unemployment in the GDR, when in actual fact, people are unemployed. Um, we know that characters like Professor, Professor Mushroom are deeply sort of ensconced in this world of um, nostalgia, of remembering what life was like before c capitalism came in. Um, and yet we also know that um, uh, many of the people who survived that time who are still living post the collapse of the Berlin Wall, we know that they have this kind of romantic, romanticised version or idealised version of what life was like before the wall came down. So that was part one of Miss Moore's recording on fantasy and reality in Stasiland. Part two will be up later this week, so make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast in order to get updates on that. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you next time. Bye for now. Bye.